0: Genesis chapter 49, we left off seeing Jacob, the patriarch, on his deathbed, calling his sons around him, pronouncing a blessing upon them. And if you recall, that was not only a blessing given to them personally, but it was a blessing that relates to Bible prophecy. One of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible is Genesis 49, where we see, as he pronounced blessing upon those twelve sons and warnings given to those twelve sons, we saw the unfolding of the entire history of the nation of Israel prophetically. Now, I know it was a challenging study, and perhaps you weren't here, or perhaps you spaced out. Well... Good news for you, it's on tape. So you can pick up the tape if you wish because it is an important section of Scripture by which you can understand where we are at prophetically right now because Israel, the nation, is God's timepiece. And you can see the events that are taking place in Israel today and how they line up with God's Word, particularly Genesis chapter 49. Well, be that as it may, we saw Jacob, Jacob, whose name is also Israel, pronouncing blessing upon his twelve sons that tell the whole story of the nation of Israel when you look at those twelve blessings chronologically. Well, the story goes on. All these, verse 28, Genesis 49, are the twelve tribes of Israel. By the way, it's the first time that's mentioned in the Bible, that terminology, the twelve tribes of Israel, right here in verse 28 of Genesis 49. These are the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve sons that were just blessed by their father Jacob. And this is it, that their father spake unto them and blessed them, everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them. Now he charged them and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre or Hebron, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. And so now he tells his boys, after giving a blessing to them, he now gives this admonition for them. He says, I'm about to die. Make sure that you bury me at Machpelah, where Abraham and Sarah are buried, where Isaac and Rebekah are buried, and where I buried Leah, my first wife. There you see, I choose to be buried. Interesting, because Jacob at this time was in Egypt, living in splendor, living in glory. For 17 years now, he had been in Egypt having it made in the shade. Had he desired, he could have ordered a huge monument to be constructed for him. He could have had a grand tomb in which he could have been placed like other nobles and leaders and important folks in Egypt. For you see, his son Joseph was the prime minister. You know the story. But that's not what he says. He wants to go back to Hebron, back to Machpelah, where he buried, and this surprises me, where he buried, and this is a shocker actually, where he buried, listen carefully, where he buried Leah. Now you might recall the story. How that Jacob fell in love with Rachel. First time he saw her, he lifted up his voice and he wept because he was so moved by her. He was so impressed with her. He was so drawn to her. He just cried. That's kind of Jacob's personality. We've talked about that a lot. Sort of the Richard Simmons of the Bible. And he looked at her and he fell in love with her and he wanted her so badly to be his wife. Well... Her dad, Laban, said, I'll tell you what, you work seven years and I'll let you marry Rachel. So Jacob did just that. For seven years he labored and it seemed to him but of a few days because of the great love he had for her. And then on the wedding night, you're aware of the story. On the wedding night, there they were, standing together. She would be veiled from head to toe. He would take her into the tent. There was no electricity, no lights in those days. The tent would be darkened that night, and they consummated their relationship when the next morning he was shocked, he was amazed, he was stunned by what he saw laying next to him. It was not Rachel, the one he loved so passionately, but it was Leah, her ugly older sister. And we talked about her name means means one that hurts your eyes, and that's true. She did. She was not pretty, you see. And so he storms out of the tent and he goes to Laban. Hey, you weasel? What's the deal? We have a custom in this land, Laban said, We can't marry the younger daughter Rachel until the older one is married. So we had to get her married first, and since you were holding a wedding, I thought it worked out nice. And so he finds himself now married to Leah, but Laban says, work seven more years and I'll let you have Rachel too. So now Jacob has two wives. Leah, the one that he was stuck with. The one that was imposed on him. The one that he didn't really want, but now finds himself committed to. And Rachel, Rachel, his passion. Beautiful Rachel. Well, as time goes on, you know the story. Rachel, you see, interestingly enough, she says, Give me children, Jacob, or I'll die. She was very demanding of him. And she then became pregnant by him, and it killed her. Interesting. Demanding her way, Give me children, or I'll die. She was pregnant first with Joseph, and then with Benjamin And in bearing Benjamin, she died in childbirth and she was buried outside of Bethlehem where her tomb is to this day. Interesting to me that he buries her outside of Bethlehem and not at Machpelah. When Leah passes away, he buries Leah at Machpelah where Abraham and Isaac and their wives were buried. And now he's about to die, and he says, I want to be buried by Leah. Interesting. I would have thought that he would have said, bury me by Rachel outside of Bethlehem. But that's not what he would say. At the end of his life, at the end of his days, he says, you know, bury me by Leah the one that hurt my eyes initially, the one that I was stuck with, the one I wasn't very happy about, the one I felt that I was gypped by. But you know what? As the days and years and decades have passed by, I want to be buried by her. You see, from Leah came a child named Judah. And from Judah comes, of course, the Messiah, Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And there's an interesting suggestion in this scenario. And that is, although initially he felt tricked and trapped with Leah, ultimately he says, bury me by Leah. Because from Leah, you see, comes Judah. From Judah ultimately comes Jesus And I suggest to you that when you're talking with others who will say something like this, man, if I knew that he was going to be like that, I would have never married him. If I knew that she was going to turn out that way, I would have never even asked her out for dinner. Man, what a bummer. And therefore, people will often say, I was tricked, I didn't know he was that way, or I didn't know she was going to be like that. And they say, because I didn't know that, I was tricked by him. I was trapped by her. I want out. I want a new husband. I want a different wife. She hurts my eyes, or he hurts my ears, or whatever it might be. Get me out of here. And all too often, what happens is, people want to get out of the relationship that they feel that they were tricked by or trapped in. But if they'll hang in there and trust the Lord, they will see, just like Jacob, they will see, hey, I thought that I was tricked by him or trapped by her, stuck with him or stuck with her. But you know, as time goes by, as the months turn into years that turn into decades, I can see that she or that he was exactly what I needed to see Jesus. Jesus was brought into our relationship. I was forced to look to the Lord, to draw from the Lord, to walk with the Lord in ways that I wasn't Or wouldn't have had I just had Rachel or Fabio or whoever it might be. If I just, if I just had him, if I just had her, it could very well be if you had him or had her that you would never discover the Lord. You would never draw from the Lord. You would never lean on the Lord. You would never learn of the Lord like you're forced to because of that relationship that you think is a bummer, that you've been trapped in, stuck with. If anybody ever had a right to say, hey, I've been tricked, it was Jacob. He really was. He truly was tricked. He thought he was marrying Rachel. I mean, he truly could say, I was tricked when I got married to Leah that day. But from Leah comes Judah, from Judah comes Jesus. And now I do not believe it's coincidental nor incidental that Jacob, at the end of his days, he could have said to his boys, Bury me by Rachel. But instead he says, Bury me by Leah. I buried her. I buried Leah in the place where Abraham and Isaac and their spouses were buried, that's where I want to be by Leah, you see. And if you hang in there and don't divorce him, if you hang in there and don't leave her for someone else, even though you've had hard times and challenging days, and even though you might feel as though you were tricked, That He dated you and showed one side, but then when you got married, ah, whoa! What's the deal? Hang in there. Stay with her. Stay with Him. For better or for worse. Because ultimately you will find the Lord will break through in a way that will cause you to say at the end of your days, Buried me by him, by her. I can see that it was the Lord all the time using the situation to cause me to learn of Jesus Christ and lean on Jesus Christ in ways that I never would have in another relationship. Interesting. He says to his boys here, on his deathbed, he says, Bury me, bury me by Leah. Bury me at Machpelah by Leah. When Jacob, verse 33, had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. That's great poetry. Poetry. I like that. He gathered up his feet into the bed. In other words, he tucked himself in. He let go of the spirit, of his spirit. He just yielded up the ghost and he was gathered unto his people. We're going to be gathered unto our people. The question is, who are your people? Who are the people that you hang out with? Who are the people that you most relate to? Who are the people that you're most comfortable being by, being around? Who are your people? You'll be gathered unto your people. And if my people or your people are the children of God, followers of Jesus, if that's the people that we hang out with, that we enjoy relating to, then man, that's where we're going to be spending eternity. But if you're hanging out with the Rock and Rodeo and Mutt's Tavern Group and all the rest, if that's your people, the KRWQ crew, if that's your people, who are your people? That's where you're going to be gathered. Well, that's fine, you say we'll be down in hell playing poker and line dancing. (laughs) Sipping on Jack Daniels, and it's going to be one fine time. Me and my people. Hey, 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 hey. (laughs) Sorry, it ain't going to be that way. In hell, it's completely, totally, absolutely dark. You will see no one or nothing. You're not going to be there sipping on Jack Daniel's playing Hearts, listening to country music. It's not going to be that way. In hell, it is completely dark and totally hot. In hell, you are totally, completely alone. Well, I, well Why would a loving God send anyone to hell? He doesn't send anyone to hell. But if a person says, no, I don't want God in my life, then what option does that leave you? God is light. If you don't want God who is light, then you get darkness. God is love. If you don't want God in your life, then you get hate. God is a Father who has a family. If you don't want God in your life, then you'll be an orphan alone for all eternity. God is the wellspring of joy, the source of happiness. If you don't want God in your life, then you will have nothing but drought and depression and darkness. You see, a person who goes to hell isn't going to a place that God has said, I'm going to torture you. But rather, let it be understood, a person that goes to hell is saying, I don't want God in my life, and God says, please reconsider. The only way I'll let you go, son, daughter, child, the only way I'll let you go is over my dead body. Literally. Literally. You'll have to trample on the body of My Son. You'll have to ignore what I have done. And if you choose to kick Me and step on Me and turn your back away from Me, then then y- you have no other place to go but darkness and death and discouragement. That's where you'll be. So when people say, well, we'll just go down there and, you know, me and you, Hefner, we'll just have a great old time. Wrong. Not so. Not true. That is not a concept of hell that is biblical. But rather there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness. Perpetual loneliness. Because if you don't want God who is good, truly psalm seventy three one says God is good, and if I don't want God, then I won't get good. all I will get is bad. Jacob was gathered to his people, just like all will ultimately be. He was gathered to his people, and Joseph verse one of chapter fifty Now his dad is gathered to his people. Jacob's people were God's people. Jacob was a lover of God. He was governed by God. His name Israel signifies just that. And now he's gone. And Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father and the physicians embalmed Israel. Keep in mind, Joseph is a man of prestige and prominence and power. He is prime minister of the land. And now he orders the physicians, those Egyptian physicians, to embalm Jacob. The embalming process took around 40 days what they would do is first they would suck the brains out of the corpse through the nose. And after they... <laughs> it's true. After they took the brains out through the nose, they would then open up the side and remove all the vital organs from a uh, a split in the side. And once the brains are removed and the vital organs are taken out, they would fill the cavity with spices particularly... Myrrh and cassia. They would also wash the body inside and out with palm wine, fill it with myrrh and cassia, as I stated, and then let it soak in nitron for about two to three weeks. So here it is now, washed with palm wine, all the organs are taken out, the brain is removed, and now it soaks in nitron for several weeks. It's removed, they put linen strips around the body and smear it with a gum, a glue if you would. A process that was very, very sophisticated. A process that to this day we don't fully understand. And yet it would preserve the corpse in amazing ways. Well, Joseph did just that. He had his dad Jacob, he had his dad embalmed in that way. The forty days, verse 3, were fulfilled for him, for so are fulfilled the days of those which are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him, threescore and ten days, or seventy days. And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spake unto the servants of Pharaoh, the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Lo, I die. In my grave which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan, there shalt thou bury me. Now therefore, let me go, I pray thee, and bury my father, and I will come again. When Pharaoh heard this, verse 6, Pharaoh said, Go up and bury thy father according as he made thee swear. Here Joseph requests through the servants his desire to fulfill the demand of his father burying dad in Machpelah, in Canaan, in Hebron today. And when the Pharaoh heard of this desire, he sent a message and would say, Go for it, Joseph. Go bury your pops. So Joseph went, verse 7, to bury his father. And with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. And all the house of Joseph and his brethren... And his father's house, only their little ones and their flocks and their herds, they left behind in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan. And there they mourned with a great and very sore lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in the floor of Atab, they said, This is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians. Wherefore, the name of it was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond Jordan, which means the mourning of the Egyptians. With this great host, elders from Egypt, family members there of Jacob's family, a whole great host, chariots and horsemen and soldiers, officials, all sorts of delegates, if you would, made their way up to Canaan. On the other side of Jordan, they had this season of mourning, this funeral, if you would. And the Canaanites who were in the land, they were just blown away. They were amazed. Such mourning. They couldn't believe it. Wow, what does this mean? This guy must have been hugely important. But you see, in reality, the importance that Jacob had as it relates to the Egyptians was simply his linkage to Joseph. Joseph is a type of Jesus. That was His significance. That was His identity. He was linked to Joseph. Just like you. Just like me. We are linked to a greater than Joseph. Jesus. And there was this great, great mourning that took place. And the Canaanites wondered. Can I ask you a question tonight? I'm sure Jacob my goodness, would be blown away looking down from heaven that day. Whoa! What meaneth this? I mean, I'm sure that when he was running from his brother Esau years before, or when he was wrestling with Laban as they were finagling and fighting and hassling, I'm sure the idea that he would have a state funeral with this kind of mourning and this kind of entourage coming to his funeral, I'm sure it would be absolutely, totally, completely unexpected in his earlier previous days. How could it be? And I wonder sometimes if it might not be good for you and me to ponder, even in these days, What if I was to die? What if you were to die? What if we were to die? What would our funeral look like? What would the memorial service be like? Would people be mourning? That is, would they say, Oh, we miss her. We miss him. We miss them. Because they were such a blessing in this way or such a blessing in that way. Can I ask you to think about this sometime? Think about what would your funeral memorial service look like if you were to die tonight? What is the legacy that you would leave? What would people say? What would your kids say? What would your wife or your hubby say? What would people around you say? How much has your life impacted others? I think this is a real key. I often tell people one of the secrets of life is to live life backwards. That is, see yourself at the end of your life. And live life backwards. See yourself when your days on earth come to an end. Don't live for today or just tomorrow, but rather say, When all is said and done, what will I have left behind? What will be the service that is held in my memory? What will it be? What will be written on my tombstone, if you would? What's my life about? It's a good thing to do. It's an important practice, I think, for anyone who's serious about life and concerned about eternity. What if my life ended tonight? What would be said, not just poetically, not just out of you know, niceties, but really, what would truly be felt and said if I was to depart today, tonight? Now this could discourage me. I could get real depressed about this real easily. I could start to wonder, man, would anybody even come? I can start to wonder, what would people really truly think and say if I was taken away today? But then I look at this story and I realize this yes, it's good for me to evaluate life and to consider Where I'm going to live life backwards. That's good. But ultimately, that which is going to take place is going to be like Jacob in this day, singularly because I'm linked to Jesus. Just like Jacob was linked to Joseph. And that's where I'm going to truly, truly find Peace about what's coming next. Not in what others say about me. Not in how others might or might not miss me. That's important to think through as I suggested to you. But ultimately I know this. I'm linked to my Lord. I'm linked to my Lord. He is my claim to fame. He is my everything. It's my linkage to Him. It's my relationship with Him. And you who know Jesus as virtually all of you do, or you wouldn't be sitting out in the dark on a Wednesday night like this. You who know Him understand this. That that which takes place around you at the end of your life is going to be based not upon primarily what you have or haven't done, but in your relationship with God's Son. Your linkage to God's Son. Your closeness with God's Son. And here there's this great celebration. The Canaanites, well, who must have this guy been to get all this? Well, it wasn't about him. It was simply because he was linked to Joseph. Just like we're linked to Jesus. So there's this great celebration that causes the Canaanites to wonder that day. His sons, verse 12, did unto him according as he commanded them, for his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought with the field for a possession of a burying place of Ephron the Hittite before Mamre. And Joseph, verse 14, returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. Now when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us of all the evil which we did unto him. Oh no, we're in trouble. Now dad's dead and Joseph's going to get his revenge. We're the guys that, that wanted to kill him. We're the guys that threw him in the pit. We're the guys that sold him into slavery. And now Dad's dead. And he's going to get revenge on us, little Joey, our little brother. Oh boy, we're in trouble. So they sent, verse 16, a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say to Joseph, forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy servants of the God of thy father. Hey, Joseph, Dad said before he died that we're to ask for your forgiveness and that you would forgive us. So do forgive us, Joseph. Here's what Dad said you would do. Come on now, Joey. Come through. Forgive us. Don't kill us. Don't send the Egyptian soldiers to take us away and Chop off our heads today. And it says, Joseph wept when they spoke unto him. Joseph just cries. The word wept there isn't the word for sobbing, it's the word for quiet weeping. Tears just rolled down his cheeks. They didn't get it. They thought that Joseph was holding a grudge against them. They thought that Joseph was just waiting for the right time to pounce on them. They thought that Joseph would be angry at them. Bitter over them. Feeling hatred against them. And Joseph wept. Grieved. He was grieved because they didn't get it. So often we think of our Lord Jesus, the greater than Joseph, as keeping a record of our previous failures. That Jesus, He he must be getting tired of me. He must be getting exhausted with me. i failed, I've wronged, I've erred, I've sinned, and certainly, man, He's going to just jump on me any day. And Jesus, we are told in John 11, at the tomb of Lazarus, wept that day. Why did Jesus weep? One of the reasons he wept was because of their unbelief. The grief of unbelief. Oh, if you had just been here, our brother would not have died, Martha and Mary said to Jesus. We told you he was sick. We sent you word that day, but you didn't come and now he's dead. And he's been locked away in the tomb for four days. Jesus wept. Oh, Jesus knew what He would do. He would call Lazarus forth from the dead. He would bring Lazarus back to life again. But one of the reasons I'm convinced why Jesus wept, not the only one, but certainly a major one, One of the reasons why he wept would be undoubtedly because they didn't believe. They were doubting the Lord. They had felt as though he let them down, that he didn't come through because he didn't show up when they wanted him to. Maybe he was mad at them. Maybe he was tired of them. Maybe he just didn't care about them. And Jesus wept. And here Joseph weeps. Same idea. My brothers, they still don't get who I am. They still don't understand my character, my nature, my heart toward them. And if you're here tonight sitting in this dark amphitheater and you think, well, man, man, the Lord must be uptight with me. He must be just about ready to throw in the towel as it relates to me. You don't get it. You don't understand. When Jesus went into the synagogue that day in Mark chapter 2, He saw a man who had a withered hand. He saw the person in the synagogue or at church, if you would, who was most in need A person who was paralyzed, who couldn't handle things all that well. Who was deformed. Who was ostracized by others. Who in that day, they would say, this guy with the paralyzed, withered hand, he must be a terrible sinner. He must have done something very wrong or he wouldn't be in that condition. We are told that Jesus looked on him and had compassion, felt compassion for him. And I say to you tonight, truly, whoever you are that has come into this place, this amphitheater, barely struggling in tonight, and you're struggling and you can't handle it, and you're withered up and you're not doing well, Jesus would look at you tonight and have Compassion on you. He's most interested in you. The person who is in the greatest need tonight in this amphitheater, He, Jesus, is most focused on and most interested in. The person who feels like I'm just withered up, I'm not doing well, I'm not reaching out, I can't handle it. You are the one. You are the one that Jesus has special affection for, and a laser-like focus on. Not the person who's doing the best, but the person who's hurting the most. You say, well, who is that one tonight? It's me. And it's you. Each of us has come limping in this place in one way or another. Each of us is struggling with something or another. And Jesus would say, I'm not keeping a record against you of your previous failures and your previous sins. Believe me, He would say to you. He would say to me. Stand up and stretch out your hand. Reach out to me. Grab a hold of me, receive from me that which I want to give to you tonight, which is forgiveness and love and friendship and all the rest. But these guys in our story, they still didn't understand that Joseph the Joseph, the Joseph had a heart of love for them. And Joseph wept. Jesus wept. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, I'd gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. I wanted to gather you close to my heart, but you wouldn't let me. How I wish I could communicate this tonight. That the Lord wants to gather you under His wing, and nestle you close to His heart. He really, truly does. I don't care what you've done or where you've been, the fact of the matter is, He's washed away that sin with His own blood, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. What can separate us from the love of God? Neither height, nor depth, nor principality, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And Joseph wept. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Well, his brethren also went and fell down before his face and said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said, Fear not. Hey, guys. Don't freak. Fear not. Lighten up. Chill out. Fear not. He says, for am I in the place of God? It's not me that is going to judge you or deal with you. That's not who I am, you see. Am I in the place of God? What a day it is when a man, when a woman realizes that we don't have to judge people. Because we're not God. What a great day it was for me when the Lord spoke to my heart. Years ago, early on in the fellowship's history, I was real concerned about an issue of somebody in the body. And the Lord spoke to my heart. I journaled it and referred to it to this day, not infrequently. John, you love them and let me judge them. Until that time, I thought it was my job to judge Him and Lord, You love Him. I'll judge Him and You love Him. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Backward, son. I'll judge Him because I see and I know and I understand. You don't, you can't, you won't. For you see through a glass darkly at best. You don't see. Oh, you think you do, but you don't. You just love Him. Leave the judging to me. I would have written him off. Spit running down his beard. His nails clawing into the gates of a Philistine city pretending to be a madman. What's he doing there? David, David, what are you doing with the Philistines going crazy, spitting, spittle running down your beard, clawing at the door. You're with the Philistines. David, don't you remember you killed Goliath, the big guy? And now you're hanging out in their city? What are you doing, David? I would have written him off. But while David was there, he was writing down a few of the most powerful and potent psalms that anyone has ever written. And God inspired him and God preserved them, those psalms. At a time when I would say, he's backslidden, he's crazy, he's foaming at the mouth, he's in the Philistine company, write him off. Call for a special prosecutor. it seems to me the guy should be impeached without question. There's no doubt about it. Look at him. He's crazy. But when we read the Word, we realize, whoa, While everyone else would have written him off, including his countrymen in Israel, saying he's on the wrong side, he's with the Philistine, he's a madman, he's backslidden, he's a sinner. God was not saying that about David that day. David was writing psalms inspired by the Spirit, composing the Bible. And I have to say, wow. See, man looks at the outward appearances, but God sees the heart. So, I simply need to say, hey, I'm not in the place of God. I do not know, I cannot know what's going on in a man's heart. Am I in the place of God? Joseph said, fear not. That's up to God to judge you guys, he was implying that day. That's that's the Father's role. And the Lord spoke to me years ago, John, your job is to love. Let me judge. Something else that He spoke to me a while after that was this. I found myself again judging myself by my intentions. Not my actions, but what I intended to do or what I meant by that. I would judge myself by my intentions and I would judge others by their actions. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, John, you have it exactly wrong. Reverse it. Judge yourself by your actions, not by your intentions, but but, but, but but by what you've actually done or didn't do. Judge yourself by your actions and judge others by their intentions. Reverse it. Joseph here says, boys, Or not? It's not my place. Am I in the place of God to judge you? Hey, he says in verse twenty, "As for you, you thought evil against me. I know that you (laughs) that you meant this as an evil thing when you threw me in the pit, when you sold me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it unto good. Hey." even though you meant it evil. Hey, it was all part of God's plan. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. You meant it for evil, but God. You you meant to kill me. Hey, but God was using that plan, you see. It was all part of God's plan to get me to Egypt where I could be prime minister and save your lives and save many people from the famine which ravished that region of the world. Don't you love Joseph? Don't you desire that that same heart would be worked into you in a greater way? Whatever happens today, hey, you might mean it for evil, but God is in control. God is on the throne. God is at work. You guys meant this for evil, but it was all part of God's plan. Fear not. Chill out. Don't freak. It was all part of God's divine design. the greater than Joseph, Jesus would say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so too, Joseph says, hey, hey, you, you, you meant this for evil, but hey, that's okay. God had a plan. God meant it for good to bring much people alive. So fear not verse 21. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly unto them. If you need to underline one verse in the book, it might be this one. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So he spoke kindly to them and gave comfort. Wow. And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, that is his grandkids, the children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. If you can still see your Bible, that's a phrase worth noting carefully. That is, Joseph now is no longer in power as prime minister. A pharaoh is on the scene, as we shall see, who doesn't know Joseph in that way as far as putting him in a place of prominence or prestige or power politically. Joseph is is getting old now. He's up in years so what does He do? He brings up His grandchildren upon His knees. Verse 23 says. It would seem as though He's out of public life. He's no longer in power politically. But He grabs His grandkids and He brings them up on His knees. He bounces them on His knees. He tells them stories. Stories of 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 God's work and God's ways and God's history. He brings them up on his knees. He brings them up on his knees. He prays. On his knees, he prays for his grandkids. On his knees, he he tells them stories. Grandpa, Grandma, hey, listen. What a wonderful time of life you're in. What a privilege you're in. When you get to be in these ages, and I'm, I'm there, you know, my son's 22 and all that, and I'll tell you, it's really cool because you don't have to prove stuff anymore. You know, when guys say, hey man, let's go hang glide, and I just say no. <laughs> Want to play in the softball team this year? No. Nope. Let's go play football today. Ah, it's okay. It's wonderful. When you're younger, you know, you go, oh, man, I got to go out there and play football, and yeah, I got to go, you know, jump off the cliff, and I got to go, you know, do this and that. And, and, and then you get to a certain place, you know, in, in your 40s and 50s and 60s, and you go, yeah, I've got to prove it to anybody. And instead of doing stuff like that, you know, oh my, we can grab that third generation like Joseph. Bounce them on our knee. Tell them the stories of God's ways and God's work and God's wonders. If you are a grandparent here, you have an opportunity for ministry like like at no other time in your life, if you'll choose to see it that way take that grandchild that grandson that grand whether he or she is 1 or 2 or 3 or 13 15 or 18 take them think back to when you were a young parent and how much you would appreciate if a grandparent if your parents or the in-laws came by and said hey we want to take your your kids for a couple days Think of how your heart just did somersaults. Whoopee! I get a break for a day or two or three. Or an hour or four. Young parents are stressed out. Think back how it was. And grandpa, grandma, if you can, move in. (laughs) Grab those little guys. (laughs) Take advantage of the opportunity. Bounce them on your knees. Take them out to lunch. Spend an afternoon with them. You may say, but John, I can't. There's a geographical distance or there's an emotional barrier that I can't do it because I've been cut off or not allowed in by the parents of my grandchildren then raise them up on your knees. Pray. On your knees. Can I ask you this, Grandpa? Grandma, can I challenge you with this? Honestly. How long has it been since you've been on your knees pleading for your grandsons and your granddaughters? It's a great ministry. I think of a grandma who taught me Scriptures, who taught us grandchildren Scriptures and told us Bible stories and taught us songs that I still sing today. You may say, where do you get those songs? And taught us Bible verses. Grandparents are so important. Joseph's a grandpa. He brings up his kids on his knees. I like that. Then Joseph, verse 24, said unto his brothers, I die. I'm dying. God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which He swore unto Abraham and to Isaac and to our dad Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from thence. All the other Egyptian famed leaders built, as I said previously, monuments, pyramids, sphinxes, or whatever it might be. Joseph had none of that. He said, all I want is for you to take My bones where they long to be. Take My bones. Take My bones with you. God's going to visit you. You're not going to stay in Egypt indefinitely. God's going to visit you. And when He visits you to set you free, to take you back to Canaan again, take My bones. And you know the story. Hundreds of years passed. But finally the day came when Moses would say to Pharaoh, let my people go, the Lord declares. And Moses would lead them on their way. But before Moses went, listen to this. We read in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19. I'll read it to you. And now they're on their way. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Hundreds of years have passed by, and now the people of Israel, Joseph's descendants, are going back to Canaan. But did you catch this? Moses took the bones with him. Moses said, I want the bones. I'm taking the bones. The bones, the bones, them dry bones. I'm taking those bones i am taking the bones of Joseph with me, Moses declares. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, the Bible says. Why? Those bones, those bones, it was a memorial. It was a promise. Joseph, our forefather, Moses could say, Moses would say, promised that there would come a day when we would be going home again. And these bones are proof of that fact. And now I'm taking these bones with me. God's going to bring us into the promised land, I guarantee. Because Joseph said, Joseph said, Joseph said, you're going to go home. Take my bones with you. Just like Jesus says, Jesus says, Jesus says, this is my body. Broken for you do this in remembrance of me and in so doing we are told scripturally we are preaching the return of Jesus Christ the coming of Jesus Christ that is when we eat of his body that little piece of cracker that little bit of unleavened bread others may say what are you doing we're saying hey This is a memorial. This is a promise that we are going home someday not too far away. He said that he would not drink of the cup until he drinks it with us in heaven. The world doesn't get it. The Egyptians must have thought, why are you taking those bones with you? We have a bone to pick with you. But Moses and the children of Israel knew it's a promise that he, he, the Lord, is going to see us through. The Lord spoke to Joseph. We would be visited. And Joseph said, take my bones. Not leave them in the wilderness, but take them to the land of promise. We're going home. We're going to make it. We got his bones on that. We're going home. We're going to make it. We've got His body and His blood. The greater than Joseph. Jesus, you see. We're going home. He's going to see us through. So Joseph would say, I leave you with my bones. My bones. You shall carry my bones from hence. And Joseph died being 110 years old. And they embalmed him. Watch this. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Thus ends Genesis. The last word literally is coffin. The book begins with creation. Ends with a coffin. Begins with glory. Ends with a grave, begins with the living God and ends with a dead man, begins with the blaze of brightness in heaven, ends with a box of bones in Egypt. Why? It's the Holy Spirit's final commentary at the end of this foundational book, Genesis. It's the Holy Spirit's final commentary on the condition of man, the repercussion of sin. Beginning so great in the first chapters of Genesis, ending so tragically in the last verses. Joseph in a coffin. Joseph, the most Christ-like man in the Bible. Joseph, a man of whom there is no recorded sin. Joseph, as we have seen, a hundred ways he typifies Christ. And yet we see Him in a coffin. Because in the book of Genesis, it was Satan who said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the forbidden tree... Thou shalt not die. God said, In the day that you eat, thou shalt surely die. The wages of sin is death. No matter how good you might be, Joseph was a very good man, you see. But the fact is, The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is there any way out? Does the story end with a coffin? Is there any hope? Is there any plan? Is there any way... To exit? Our next book is entitled just that. Exodus. And we'll see God's redemptive plan unfold. And I'm so thankful that He has a plan for you and a plan for me that we're not going to stay in a coffin in Egypt indefinitely or go into heaven. Let's stand, shall we? As we go our way tonight, I believe that the Holy Spirit would speak to some hearts here this evening. Some people who were just about ready to call it a day, to toss in the towel, to throw it all away. That is, you just had enough of Him. You're just weary with her. You feel like you've been tricked and you can't take it any longer. You listen to me. Hang in there. And you too will find that it was all part of God's divine design. Even if you married him or married her, when you shouldn't have, Maybe you were a Christian and he wasn't. Maybe you were a believer and she wasn't. Maybe you didn't pray. Maybe you knew you shouldn't go through, but you went ahead anyway. Listen, once you said, I do, that's it. God says, me too. Once you say, I do, that's it. but I made a mistake, you say. I goofed terribly that day, maybe. But if you obey what the Lord says and give it to Him and stay true to what you committed to for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse till death separates us. And if you do what you promise to, when your life comes to an end, you will say, I love her. I love him. I thought it was a torturous trick. But in reality, it's him or her I would pick again because Jesus came through Bury me by Leah Yeah Bury me by Leah What not Rachel Not the one that was so attractive to you You had such passion within you for her and such desire. You want Leah to be the one that's next to you as you lie together? Mm-hmm. Whoever you might be that's toying with the idea of divorce, separation, walking out, doing something else, you listen carefully. Don't. Hang in there. Stay true. And watch and see what God will do. But he's so, she's so... oh! They may have meant it for evil, but God has meant it for good. Mm-hmm. These stories are written for us to save us lots of heartache and lots of heartbreak. Maybe you say, man, John, I, I, I wish I would have heard this 15 years ago because now I've already aired and I'm already on Wife 7. And what do I do? How do I get... What do I do now? You learn your lesson. You say, thank you, Lord. I've wandered a bit and stumbled somewhat and been bruised and blackened and blued. And and now, Lord, I get the picture. And now, Lord, I understand that Your way is right and true. And I thank You, Lord, that I don't have to be afraid like Joseph's brothers were when dad died. But I know you, Lord. You you see me. You know my failures. You know my vulnerability. And you say to me like Joseph said to them, Fear not. There is therefore now no condemnation. But learn your lesson. Don't repeat your error. You'll come out way ahead of the game in this life and in eternity if you choose to say, Lord, thank You for Your mercy. Now by Your grace, I'm going to do what You say from this day on. you'll do well. May God give us much wisdom lest we end up in a coffin.